You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here today. I'm bringing you a delicious episode with the magnifique Ian Moore, who is, uh, every, what did I describe him as? Laser-guided comic. He is. He's one of those guys who, when I started, was headlining the comedy store and just seemed like he couldn't put a foot wrong. Every word was just shot through with persona. Every joke was pitch perfect. And it is fascinating in the beginning part of this interview talking about the forces behind that the the intense sort of fear really that caused him to create um such a, a precise and precision based on stage persona loads of that stuff to come uh, including also his uh, i mean there's an incredible bit he's now a writer in France as well as a comic and corporate host and uh, there is some hilarious and painful stuff to cover as he delves into the content of a 10-page note uh, sent to him by Harlan Coben's editor uh, regarding his first novel so loads on that as well and he lives in France. That's the headlines. You're going to enjoy this one. I had a wonderful time. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders um, for extras, 25 minutes of extras, uh, on, uh, including Ian on what it means to him to be a mod, his entry point into being published as a writer, and the forces behind his doomed attempt to set up a creative retreat for artists. All of that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, along with the uh, all the extra content and the recent Insiders Zoom Q&A audio with Nish Kumar, Alfie Brown, James Acaster, and there's one coming up with Fern Brady. It's exclusive to Insiders, so join up soon if you can. Here's Ian Moore. Welcome to the show, at last, Ian Moore. It's great Hello. to have you. It's lovely to be here. Well, here, I'm here. How, well, yeah, you're in France. This is a first. I don't think I've ever recorded a, an episode in 360-odd <laughs> with someone who was physically in France. And it's another first because you are standing up. I am standing up. I. It's... Uh, this is the, I've when I when we first in lockdown you start doing the Zoom gigs and I did the first couple sitting down and I didn't have the energy I didn't have the timing or the energy to be able to perform stand up I don't know how you can do it sitting down Dave Allen is doubly a genius in my eyes for being, <laughs> able, for being able to sit down for so much of it and and just standing up and I'm not the most energetic of comics I don't you know, I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not Russell Kane, that's for sure. Uh, I don't put in that much energy, but I need the adrenaline to be going somewhere. I need to, to feel a bit freer and just move about. And, and it just makes a difference standing up until I get tired. Yeah, fair. <laughs> that's all right. So let's talk about where, how much COVID notwithstanding, here's my first question, COVID notwithstanding, because obviously who knows who or what any of us are at the moment. Yeah. How much of a comic are you compared to how much of a writer you are now? Because you're someone who, when I started, you were like a comedy store killer, right? You're one of those people I think of as like, oh, proper, right? And I, I say finally on the show because I have been taking my time getting round to all of you, all of the people in my kind of personal pantheon of yeah. the guys who were killers when I started, in part because many of you are white men and I'm trying to space you out. But uh, <laughs> I don't blame you for that. <laughs> but I remember you being like, 
walk on stage, immediately funny. That kind of... There's a clip I saw of you online recently I was revising. And you walk out on stage as a televised thing and you just go nice to be here in a way that it it's clear that it isn't nice for you to be here and everyone is already pissing themselves and that kind of not not necessarily like funny bones means its own thing but it's stuff where you kind of go the cloth that this person is cut from is funny right yeah. so when you walk out like those the people i think of as the kind of comedy store killers every breath and beat of it is measured and designed permeated with personality and attitude and bang bang joke 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 so mm. that's how i think of you and just set you up for the listener that's who you are in my mind now i know right. since then you fucked off to france and written a load of books <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll get to all of them but what do you feel how much kind of percentage are you still a kind of stand-up that exercises that muscle and how much are you enjoyably becoming a writer in a shed in in the loire i it's difficult to say because I think that I always think of myself as a stand-up. I don't think of myself as an author. If, if somebody asks me what I do, I say stand-up. I don't say author. Um, you know, even though, what am I on my third, third book, third published book? But it's still, stand-up to me is still, I mean, I, the reasons I started stand-up in the first place were to try and get enough of a name to be able to just sit back and do writing rather than performing. Um, but you kind of get, you, you get so wrapped up in the whole thing, and I don't think you can do stand up sort of half heartedly with your with your eye on the horizon about what you want beyond it. So I would say I'm, I'm just stand up, and it's interesting you you, you say that you're walking out on stage like that because walking out on stage at the comedy store is firstly you've got that amazing rush because it's the stage to be on, but secondly is also there's just terror. Utter terror. <laughs> Saying nice to be here, I probably was genuinely frightened <laughs> of, of walking out on that. I mean, that has gone. That's largely gone because I compare the comedy store now. That fear kind of went a little bit. Um, you still need a little bit there, I think. You still need to be really on your toes, you know. Like, but I, I don't know. About, I don't know if, if everything was as measured as it looks. If you see what I mean, it just I ha I had that kind of personality if you like that makes it look like it is completely um every word is written as it and performed as it should be mm -hmm. but it just is a, largely luck i think in terms <laughs> of that. I, <laughs> and, and also i think that there's a difference in performing at the comedy store and performing somewhere else you know uh and i i, I kind of the comedy store stopped booking me in 2004 or something like that because I just was not doing the job. And I had to go away and completely rethink what I wanted to do as a stand-up and how I was going to be as a stand-up. And then came back a couple of years later and, and it was a different. It was, it was almost like having two careers, if you like, the two different attitudes to stand-up itself. What, what, were, what were the differences? When, when you said you weren't doing the job, what, what were you doing? How do you mean? Well, I was just... Um, my friend Paul Thorne, you know Paul Thorne, mm -hmm. is a fantastic comic. He, he, we were. I'd had an ordinary gig at the store, and he just said, "He said you look, you look dead behind the eyes. You know, you don't look like you want to be there. You're just kind of trolling out the stuff." Um, and I think what we'd moved to France about three years earlier, and I was kind of in this. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know if I wanted to keep travelling like that, and I didn't know if I. 
if I even wanted to continue stand-up because I was... For so long, when I started stand-up, I thought, this is this just isn't right. I'm not a stand-up. I'm not a performer. I'm not... At some point, somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder and go, come on, mate, you've, you've, had, a, you've had a good run, but it really is time to clear off, leave it to the professionals. And that was, how, that was my attitude to stand-up. I was constantly looking over my shoulder thinking, it's going to end sometime. And I think I'd talked myself into that. So I went away and rewrote everything and changed my style of performance as well a little bit um, to look like I was enjoying it. You know, even though I used to enjoy it, I kind of got pigeonholed in that um, the deadpan kind of thing. And I didn't mm. want to be deadpan. So I, when I came, when I rewrote and rethought what I wanted to do, I was much more me. You know, I much love more it. I love vulnerable. It when- I love it when people do a big, like, recognise that they're going down a particular route. The person I think of is Joe Wilkinson, who right. uh, uh, <laughs> who won't come on this podcast because he's a coward. I've said it, Joe. <laughs> um, but I know he listens. Um, and uh, my door is always open. But I remember I started around about the same time as Joe, and he was doing something, and it was really funny. He was doing really well at most gigs, and he stopped, and we, I remember at the time, as you know, when you're a newbie, and one of you, one of your peers, starts to yeah. be doing really well. They're clearly on the track, and then they stop. Carl Donnelly done, has done something different. Carl Donnelly seems to do it every few years in a way that I absolutely love. He goes, "I'm going to be this now," and just totally oh, no. changes what he does. It's fantastic. So I love those moments when when people um, kind of sort of put the brake on and go. So when when you, just talk more about that, you were deadpan, and you didn't want to be deadpan. So how had you? Started off deadpan. How did you get there? I don't know. I think again. I think partly it was um, it was nerves that I couldn't that I felt like I wouldn't that I couldn't express myself, and therefore I was just kind of I had this material that I'd written that would suit me not putting in any kind of movement at all to hide oh, the fact okay. that I was that I was terrified. And I didn't realise this was so big a thing for you. Because yeah, that's gonna, I, you can hear that in quite a glib way, like, oh, I'm always scared when I walk out on stage sort of yeah. thing. But that was really, it, you ended up kind of creating a persona to, to, to protect yourself. Yeah, completely. It's, it's like when you see somebody who's reluctantly doing karaoke or something, and they're, just, they're, not, they're not trying to sing in any tone at all. They're just, they're just doing the words. Yeah. And I ju- and I felt that I'd kind of got down that route. I'd pushed myself down that route, and I needed to make a change uh, for for the very simple reason that it was my job. And mm. uh, when you live in France, and I and I wasn't fluent in French, I'm not fluent in French. I <laughs> wasn't. I'm, I'm pretty good at French, but there was no way I could get a job in France, so I had to really look at what I wanted out of stand-up and as a career as well. So let's talk about the beginnings of your, your career as a stand-up, because that's something I, I, I read in the, in the first chapter of Modernifique, which I think your second memoir. Second one, yeah. Um, was You mentioned that the plan had always been to be a writer. Yeah. So that's quite a sort of... I mean, I think maybe that's more common now amongst comedy writers that they go, oh, I'll start off a stand-up and make a name for myself. Was that yeah. what, did you feel people were doing that at the time when you started? No. Um, was it, and I, it was a kind of cunning angle on your part. It was. I mean, uh, I, just, I just thought, well, I don't want to be the performer. I want to be a writer. So I'm going I'm to write some, try and write some comedy for people, try and start off writing sketches and stuff. And it just wasn't getting anywhere. And also, I, wrote, I started writing some material for Brian Conley 
Okay. And and just this back and forth constantly with whether it was his agent or whoever, I don't know. It wasn't with Brian directly. But it constantly changed so that by the end of that writing process, the idea that I'd come up with wasn't even part of the sketch that we finished with. And I thought, well, that's not my voice anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try, I, I, you know, maybe I should try and perform it. And I didn't, and and. It, and there, I didn't. It, that wasn't my conscious decision either. It wasn't my. The, the reason I first did a first gig is that I went to see a gig at the Banana Cabaret, and I still remember the the bill at the Banana Cabaret. It was Matt Hardy, JoJo Smith, the amazing Mister Smith, and the Tracy Brothers. So this would have been ninety five. I think it was nineteen ninety five. Okay. And I was there with one of my oldest friends, Charlotte, and we left. She said, um, and this is no offence to anybody who's on that bill. <laughs> okay, please, please do not take offence with this. But she said, Charlotte, she said, well, what, what do you reckon? And I went, it's all right. It's all right. I reckon I could do that. You know, typical yeah. bloke, right? And then uh, she rang me up a month later and said, I've booked you an open spot. <laughs> you, you go and put your money where your mouth is, okay. and uh, and that was it. That was it. That's that was my first gig. It was, it was she that got me into it. Whether I would have actually gotten around to it myself, I don't know. So I think that's a quite a uh, um, that's an interesting introduction to stand up in that someone else has effectively dared you because you could have yeah. pulled out, right? You could have yeah. gone, no, I'm not going to do it, but you. Yeah. You did. You went for it. And I, yeah. similarly, I think there are tones of I recognise that thing of like there's someone I saw when I was thinking about dipping my toe in the water and I saw them have what I now realise was a very rocky gig for them. Right. <laughs> but really? at the time I was like, well, if that guy can do it, come on. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, the sort of hubris uh, hubris of, of youth. Yeah. So you gave it a try because now you'd been writing for Bryant Connolly because yeah, you, that was pre before you'd ever set foot on a stage. Yeah, absolutely. And I was writing for, wasn't actually writing for, that very little stuff was used. I just had these constant back and forth. I got, I was got, I got used by Smith and Jones. Okay. Um, and then I, someone said, I'm like Jack D. Right. This was just in a conversation because you're very, you know, sarcastic and dry and all of that. And sure. Not very pleasant to be around, <laughs> which is probably what they were <laughs> implying. Um, but I, so I said, well, I'm going to write some stuff for Jack D. You know, I may as well. And I sent it off and I sent it off to, you know, I didn't know off just, the Just on, on spec, kind of not just, as a person yeah. in the industry. Just no, no, just, just sent off. Yeah, just okay. see how it goes. Uh, and then about uh, about three months later, I, they sent me his autograph. <laughs> and, <I> thought, <laughs> and Wow. Uh, was so, uh, so that was a... <laughs> that was a <laughs> That was a kind of that was like being slapped around the face in the 18th century with a glove, going, "All right, well, I'll see." You. I'll oh God! When you write you something on, on spec and you get no reply, you think anything's better than this, but it isn't, yeah. is it? No, it's <laughs> an not. autograph. <laughs> okay. So, and, and do you do you remember the quality of the stuff you sent off? Now, can you sort of be objective about like, was it any good? Do you think there was any anything good in it? I, there might have been some good ideas in it, but I don't think it would have been any good because, sure. you know, when I first started performing and writing stand up for myself, you know, I look back now and you go, man, that's so open spot. You know, yeah, you, 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 you can spot open spot material, and and it just is 
that it's, it wouldn't have been good enough, you know. And and, and I hadn't seen any comedy. And, and for all for was. all we know, or for all you knew at the time, Jack D doesn't accept unsolicited material. Like you no, know, I mean, it's not like he was absolutely. Smith and Jones TV show. Yeah, absolutely. Jack D's just a, a stand-up. So yeah, okay. So was that the beginning of the sense of the kind of pigeonholing that you mentioned? The the idea yes. that okay, you're grumpy. You're a grumpy git. Basically, you've called yourself yeah. on stage. You're a grumpy git. So yeah. do that on stage. Now that isn't yeah. necessarily the same as. How would you like to express yourself? What would be fulfilling? It's just kind yeah. of like you appear to be this. That might yeah. work. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and and wrote for that. Wrote almost with that in mind, not with the Jack D thing in mind, because I went and then watched some of Jack's shows, which I hadn't really watched even before mm. I sent him this material. <laughs> just incredible arrogance, and uh, and and I and I wasn't that. I never thought I was that. You know, other people would say that, but I look, I watched Jack and I go, hey, he's a great, great comic. Uh, but I didn't think I was that. I'm not that vicious. I'm not that, that angry. If you see, mm. no, not angry. It's not, that's not what Jack's about it, but it is vicious at times. And I'm not. But then people, you know, when I, when I first came on the circuit, people would go, well, it's Jack D, you know, mm. you know, and I had a falling out with Addison because I, then I was signed to Off the Curb very early on. Okay. Who, who were Jack's agents. And I had an argument with Alison years ago. I was very new and very arrogant. And he said, you know, ironically, he said, you could do some writing for Jack. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I went, I'm a comic. Maybe you can do some writing for me. And we had this. this okay. I know. What a ridiculous thing to say. Um, but, yeah, it, it was... Uh, I, I kind of was pushed down that thing. You know, everybody go, oh, you're like Jack D. And I go, I'm not, I'm not like Jack D. Because it's, it's marketable. It's an angle. And when you say I everybody, suppose. do you mean management? Or do you yeah. mean your peers? Yeah. Presumably other yeah. comics weren't going, hey, you should do more of this, or were they? No, I think other comics were saying the, the thing about Jack D. Not, not often, but it was a management thing. There was a management thing. And, of course, being signed to the same agency, that you know, it's like being a sub yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> sure. And that's weird, isn't it? Because you'd think people would go, there's already Jack D <laughs> as a warning, yeah. rather than, hey, it's yeah. working out for him, you should lean into yeah. it. Yeah, well, but maybe I, it was their plan. Maybe it was their plan all along. Like Man City will buy a, will buy an opposing forward and just keep him in the reserves <laughs> so that he doesn't, he doesn't actually steal the line. It's obviously clearly wasn't, but, you know, it's... Uh, I mean, I it. have heard of, I don't know about in comedy representation, but I have heard of stories about... Um, like sketch acts, pilots for sketch shows, kind of stuff whereby you go, oh, let's employ both and see which one makes it because there isn't room for both. Right. I mean, not that that was, you know, yeah. a different thing. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the idea of the kind of deadpanness, do you remember the, the first bit that you wrote in that voice that worked where you were like, oh, hang on, I've, I've got something? Uh, let me think. Um, oh, I remember my, I remember one of my opening lines, but it was just it's filth and just not just deeply unpleasant what was it i something about having a problem with with i never know how to start i always have a problem with chat up lines uh you know that chat line would you like to spend breakfast with me i made the mistake of saying would you like to spunky breast fuck with me <laughs> and just you see what i mean you see what i mean about open spot material <laughs> You see what I mean about me having to change my mind as how my career was going yeah. as well. <laughs> and did that work? Would that gear it did. work? It yeah. did. It did. It really, tragically, it really did. Like you say, different times. 
So this is Ian. Brilliant. I'm having a wonderful time. Let's get back to it. We don't need to we don't need to mess about. You can go to ianmore.info to find out more about Ian. Death and Croissants is out on July 2021. That's July this year. I realize as I read the sentence it's not next July, is it? That would be keen. Oh, did we talk yet about Ian's laptop? It didn't make it. I saw him tweet. Oh Christ. Uh he also has a new podcast coming out called Appropriately Enough Mustn't Grumble. You can get links to those in the show notes of this episode. Um and uh, do check out what he's up to because he's such a a fluent writer and it's I, I really enjoyed uh modnifique and i'm looking forward to reading death and croissant death it's not it's not cross 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 god i'm like Stuart laws now croissants uh anyway all of that stuff from ian and you know what i'm up to you can join the insiders club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all your extras fern brady will be joining us on the 24th of may for an insiders only exclusive zoom q a so if you are in the insiders club get your questions ready for that and if you have joined recently don't panic i will send you the the joining details shortly before that happens so make sure the email address info at comedianscomedian.com is whitelisted that is the sort of technical admin we get done on the podcast these days. Another little shout out to those of you who are on LinkedIn. If you're a business person, I'm launching my resilient speaking uh, stuff uh, on LinkedIn. And some of you have very kindly jumped on and made a connection with me there, which I really appreciate. It's like social media, but for business and somehow less awful because it's business. So there's a lot less Oh, maybe I'm just connected to nice people, so I don't. There we go. It's like social media, but ring fenced, so you only see stuff from people you're connected to. Isn't that how it's all supposed to work? But do get in touch. I've done some great resilient stuff this week for Comic Relief and for UK TV as well, and uh, I am just feeling in full flow. I've got a post amble for you, which is a sort of a. I'll get into it when we get there. Let's get on with the episode. Let's get back to Ian Moore. So you were kind of approaching the circuit, represented. This is before the change. You were with Off the Curb before you kind of went and had a, a kind of a yeah. break from it and, and come yeah. back to it. And who were your kind of contemporaries at the time? Who were the people that you were thinking, you know, who were the people who were like, one of the things that happens when you are a, a, when you move from being an open mic to being a kind of young semi-pro yeah. is some of your other semi-pro friends that you were open mics with accelerated at an extraordinary rate yeah well simon evans and gavin webster i think were my immediate um contemporaries we paul foot as well we did a lot of the same um uh open spot shows and competitions and and all of that so they would have been my my straight contemporaries and then maybe a couple of years later it would have been jimmy carr who you know i met for five minutes and then didn't see him again for another (laughs) 20 years (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it was people like, and it was, it was white blokes. It was white blokes in, in suits. Yeah. You know, that was, that was the, it must've been dull. In my opinion, it must've been dull to, to go to some of those shows. All those names, Simon Evans, Gab Webster, Paul Foote, Jimmy Carr, they may be white blokes, but they're very strong flavours. And I yeah. wonder, do you know what I mean? You could put all of them on uh, a, a bill. You'd be wrong to. Other <laughs> other genders yeah. and skin tones are available. But <laughs> do you know what I mean? In terms of the comedy they deliver, it's vastly different, vastly different styles. Yes, I, I know. I appreciate that. But it's in the end, it is still the, there's a kind of commonality of attitude, I think, as well, in that you are, to a certain extent in comedy, you are a white bloke raging against the world at that time probably mm-hmm. as well pointing out this and that and so it is it's like you know it's like 
in a sense, it's it's like four members of the same band going off and doing individual projects. There's still That's that really thing underlying it, yes. you know, and it, like the circuit is so much better for it not being like that anymore. They are all fantastic comics, don't get me wrong, and I was sort of hanging on to their, their coattails as, as we all sort of moved up a bit. But I do find it, I find it now, thinking back those weekends, you know, that you'd have in Jonglers Southampton or wherever, Jonglers Portsmouth is the, the Hades of comedy. Um, <laughs> that's just to, for clarity, that's Hades and not heyday. Certainly, <laughs> <laughs> was never. I've, I once stood on stage at Jonglers Portsmouth at Christmas show, and some woman just threw her entire Christmas dinner at me, and it just hit my my front and just sort of, bleh, you know, that awful sort of <laughs> jellyfied gravy just sort of <laughs> flopped down onto the stage in front of me, and I just went. Right, I've had enough. I've had enough of this, and and I left. I walked off the stage, um, up the stairs, got my coat, walked through the um, the club. By which time, the woman's been given a free bottle of champagne by the club for whatever I have done to upset her. And I drove to Stansted and just flew home. I cancelled the rest of the week and just thought, I'm not doing this. There's no way I'm putting up with this horrible place so what i mean i know not all gigs were like that but i, I want to get on to how you cope with traveling that kind of i remember hearing about you and um uh al uh oh al pitch of course al, al pitcher yeah. both doing that thing whereby you live in a country that isn't uh britain and then fly back to it and gig and do like you know work out days yeah. like if i do four days here and then i'm home for seven days and then i do like kind of alternate weekends or something we, we'll get into that but just before we do that pre pre the kind of creative change for you it sounds like the what had led you down that kind of path which may now looking back have been a misstep for you mm. was a combination of factors maybe fear and yeah. and trying to perform in a way whereby you could express yourself but safely mm. and and also that desire to offer something that is a strong flavor that is kind of bookable yeah was yeah. there anything else in the mix of of what you what you were when you first kind of created yourself as a comic not really there was a i like to dress smartly so therefore you you had that authority and therefore your material had to be authoritative, if you see what I mean, that you were coming at it with um, with a strong attitude that was backed up by your image. And so everything, the, the writing, the performance and the literally the clothing all fitted the one style. They really do, yes. You know, and... and uh, Part of my authority on stage is what I'm wearing. I, I genuinely believe that. You know, sometimes it, it doesn't always work. But, but it, I think that's a large part of it. And I feel far better and far more authoritative as a person if I'm dressed smartly. So it all comes together. And, and is that, to what extent is that, does that trap you in having to deliver authoritative material? Because yeah. I've always, obviously, your your image is the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, Ian Moore, he's the, the mod one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, I yeah. don't even really know about mods, but I know what you look like, and I could, I feel like I could yeah. draw you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, so, and absolutely, that had that has authority. But does that that then become something which prevents you from 
improvising or taking risks with softer sort of stuff? I think so. I think it did because I I, I was kind of trapped in it in a way um, that I couldn't get out of without without changing, without sort of... Um, I was so trapped in my material, so really quite rigid in my material, that I didn't feel like I needed almost to to change. If you see what I mean, that that it worked. Why would I? Why would I not? Why would I do anything else? It was only when I when I realised and when Paul pointed out and when the store pointed out that you know things weren't working. There was something that wasn't missing. I wasn't firing properly. Mm. That I had, that I then thought well. The suit doesn't have to stop you from doing anything else. Go out and start comparing. Go out and just really loosen up. But keep the suit, you know, if you, and write more closely to what your personality is. So you've got a different set of tools then. You've got your personality on stage more than you had before. You've still got the suit, which is part of your personality, but you're far, far looser with it. And it, and it, and it turns out it does work. I mean, I didn't... I had no plans to become a, a almost like a full-time compare after a while but it just it just suits me now it, because mm. then I don't have to I don't have to worry about the that well that word shouldn't be there in that joke I've really screwed up that joke mm. didn't make any difference to the audience it just felt loose I was frightened of almost veering off script because because I just, it's like getting, like swimming out to the deep end when you just, you haven't, you can't touch the bottom. Yeah. You know, and and I was, like I say, I was terrified of that. That's terrified so of letting somebody else in. Particularly in Manchester, I found that I really, it took me years to get a handle on Manchester Comedy Store. Um, I felt that it was almost dangerous. I felt, I felt really that I shouldn't be there. And so I would just not let anybody in. You know, it was my words. You're just going to hear my words, and I'm gonna, as soon as I see that light, you'll see the back of me. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you because know. to a southern act, the Manchester Comedy Store is a rough club disguised as the Comedy yeah. Store. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it, like it really, you walk in, and you go, "Well, I recognise these colours. I believe this animal is safe." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not not to suggest that, that the club is, is inherently rough, but you do need. Do you know? Danny McLaughlin told me something brilliant. I may have mentioned this on the podcast before. We were backstage at Hot Water in Liverpool, and I was saying, I just find it. I'm from the generic South Midlands. Yeah. I don't have material yeah. about who I am. I, you yeah. know, like that's that's not my stock in trade. And so I've always felt like really hard to start gigs in the Northwest. I've got to say something provocative and, and roll with it because I don't have a system for starting up there. Yeah. And, and I sort of felt like, what is it? Have you really got to, <laughs> I think, I don't want to put these words in Danny's mouth, but, you know, like with uh, shows in Liverpool, sometimes the green room word on the street for Southern Act is you've got to suck them off a bit first. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or oh, I can't remember who said that to me. And I thought, I don't want to do that. And I was talking to Danny about it. And he said, no, all it is is you're from the South, you're middle class, and they're worried that you're going to condescend to them. Yeah. And that's it. That I'm so grateful to him because that totally changed the way I looked at it. I went, oh, it's not, I'm not, it's not necessarily confrontational. It's just they yeah. have been condescended to in the past by people yeah. that look and sound like me. And I yeah. don't need to butter I, I them up. That. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's because of you. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with that. I think, I think there's a large part of that because I'm actually from the north. Oh, I, know yeah. I, okay. I don't have the accent. I was born in Blackburn, which is not far from Manchester. Yeah. So, and I was trying different ways to start this Manchester gig and it would just play on my mind all the time. And I remember going on stage once 
And kind of look, ignore the accent because I'm actually from Blackburn, but I live in France now. Right. <laughs> just, just this voice at the back of the auditorium went, mate, if you were Muslim as well, we'd have even more reason to hate you. I just, <laughs> I just, it was, what are you, you know, I had no choice. I had no, no chance in that, in that environment doing it like that. So yeah. now I play it. I just, I just go on. I just tell them I don't like the place. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because and, then they and, know where you're coming from. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Don't pander. <laughs> I'm sort of trying to build up a picture of the assumptions that I've made about you as a kind of buttoned-down, tightly scripted, high-status, authoritative kind of act, and yeah. the sort of revelation, if you will, that oh no, some of that is scaffolding that you've placed around yourself through to you know, because of. You know, inspired yeah. maybe by kind of fear, tension, that kind of like yeah. those, those kind of concerns. So let's talk about the the break in your stand up. You took a bit of time out. You were already yeah. in France at the time, and you were coming back yeah. over and, and pinging back and forth. And was that did that feel manageable? It kind of did for a very short while. Um, you know, in terms of distance, it's not that far. It's what four hundred, five hundred miles, right to London, I would say, from here. So in terms of distance, it never felt far. The flights, you know, took an hour from my local airport. So it, it, to begin with, to begin with, it was exciting. To begin with, it was really like, you know, I felt, and I've always kept this kind of delusion in my head anyway, because it just helps with the travel, that I am some kind of international spy swanning around airports, and, and, and it keeps me going. I know it's, I know it's deluded. I, I, I don't think degree. you're alone in that. I absolutely <laughs> no, do exactly. that. <laughs> I know, I, you know, and it just keeps you going, doesn't it? Um, but, then, but then the reality of it was that you're stepping off a plane and you're going to spend three days in a town that you don't really want to spend time in necessarily. That's nothing against any town. It's just killing time in hotels, constantly walking in and out of TK Maxx and and just trying to kill the days before you went to a club that you didn't actually enjoy all that much. Yeah. You know, I, I enjoyed being a stand-up, but I think because I was so um, focused partly on paying the bills, that was the most important thing, was, was just paying the bills. So you do the weekend, the jongler's weekends, and I found that soul destroying. And that's not, you know, I'm very grateful for the work. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, but I just as as a sustainable circuit comic, it didn't work. It couldn't work because the travel became, you know, there were literally times where I was driving to the airport and I just stop in a lay by and ring up Julia and say, I've missed my plane mm. and just wouldn't go, um, which is not financially or in any career way, sustainable, like I say. I had, so I had to change not just not just what I was doing on stage, but where I was going to be doing it, you know, and get back to the smaller clubs and really enjoy being on stage and actually show that I was enjoying being on stage. That was a big thing for me. So let's just pause here, or let's just take a tangent into your domestic situation in France. Because yeah. it's such a big leap. It's one of those things that I, I imagine during the pandemic, a lot of people have thought, do you know, I mean, now that everything's online, we could just fuck off. Me and my wife have had a big chat. We, yeah. were, we were already, we, we lust after New Zealand all the time. Right. We have done for years. We love it. Yeah. Absolutely love the place. And that came back in as a topic of conversation. Of course. 
Um, but obviously there's fear and, uh, you know, you've done something very brave in moving to... Yeah, uh, so we were told, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go on. Well, just tell, <laughs> tell me about it then. Tell, just to paint the picture for us, what the place looked like at the time when you moved there and why. Well, it, it was... We'd been coming on holiday for the, in this area for years because my wife's parents... Well, my, my mother-in-law's French and they have uh, like a little holiday second home, I guess, near here. So we'd been coming on holiday to the area for years. First time was in 1990. And I remember just sitting in the garden in their place, just soaking up this, this complete tranquility and just saying, I just want to retire here and write light, undemanding comic novels. That's what, that, was, that was my entire ambition at, at the age of 19. And then... What was it? Two thousand and constantly looking at the, all the estate agents' windows because the prices around here are just nuts, you know. And for somebody who was living in London at the time, you just cannot comprehend nuts in the right direction. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. oh, just so cheap, just so absurdly cheap. This, I mean, this isn't meant to sound like a boast. It's not. It's just. It's just an indication of what you know where we are. What what we've got like two and a half acres. Two big barn conversions, a pool and a pond, and all of, and all of that, and it cost us what was it? It was one hundred and eighty thousand pounds. Wow! Yeah, wow! Just that's just that's just crazy. So in my mind, the idea of of living here and commuting back was just a no brainer. There was no there was no bravery involved in it. it. Genuinely, wasn't. If I'd thought it was brave, I probably wouldn't have done it <laughs> not that courageous but but we moved out in 2000 at the start of 2005 we had uh, my elder son was four and Natalie my wife was pregnant with our second son we've now got three sons and I and I missed growing you know I missed a lot of their younger years certainly um, Morris and Samuel my older kids because I was because I was away all the time and that caused problems, you know, that, that, that caused massive problems where I had to think, I have to, again, I have to do this differently. Mm. You know, I can't, I can't be away every weekend. It's not, it's not fair on my wife for a start. She was essentially a single mum for so much of it. So, it, you know, although it, it, sounds, it sounds great on paper, it, it's not something, if I thought back now, I'd have made a greater effort to find something around here or put in more effort on being a writer and, and, and really, really concentrated on the writing rather than the stand-up. Because the it time. felt at the time, it felt like this is, this is a possibility. I'll just pop yeah. back and forth. I'll keep doing yeah. my thing, best of yeah. both worlds. And yeah. then the reality of yeah. the kind of grind, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, even now, we've been here 16 years. And when we went into lockdown last March... I, th- I went back to the UK at Christmas because I had to do something, uh, and that's the longest time I've spent in France in that in those sixteen years. Yeah. So that's what eight months, seven months, which is which is crazy, really. You know, my French has massively improved from being here um, mm. because before I was really just a visitor. No. That's really difficult, isn't it? That when you wanted when you want to try, it's like the road, isn't it? At the end of the day, you're doing the road in a different way. Yeah. But you're effectively just spending a lot of time yeah. traveling. And one of the downsides of that is like, you know, I moved to Bristol five years ago and I've got very few friends here because yeah. you move somewhere as an adult, you don't make a lot of friends. And you move somewhere as an adult comedian, 
when are you going to socialise with the few options you do get, you know? Absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah, you know, and, and, and it became a real issue in a family situation as well. Like uh, my middle son had, had some problems and, you know, we had to sit down and talk about it. And he, he said, basically, it's because you're not here. Ooh. You know, and that's 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 tough. It's so tough. I remember before becoming a parent, I thought this is going to change my perspective on stuff in ways I can't cope with or in ways I can't predict. But it's the fact yeah. of the way I always think of it is something like Breaking Bad. Did you ever watch Breaking Bad? Right. I never watched so Breaking So the superpower Bad. of his character, Heisenberg, in, in Breaking Bad is that he's able to change the perspective on a situation. So someone's got a gun to his head and he'll just think of a way very quickly, because a team of writers have had two weeks to do it, he'll think of a way very quickly <laughs> in which he can change what's at stake so that now the person wants to protect him. Right? That's the thing. So right. I always felt like parenthood, is, and I sort of anticipated parenthood will be like that. The things that are important to me now won't be as important to me and what does that mean for who I am? If who yeah. you are is arguably the things which are important to you, the knowledge that those are going to change is enormous. So yeah. to have your, yeah. your kids say, I'm, your stand-up is affecting yeah. my behaviour because you're not here. Wow, what a, what a yeah. blow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, kids don't understand stand-up anyway because my eldest son, for instance, he, when he was very young, he, in fact, we just moved here. And it was one of those repeats of some late night comedy show. And we just caught it. And he came out, of, he came downstairs and out of bed. And he watched me watching myself on television. And he said, he said, don't worry, Daddy, I'm, I'm coming to, to work with you next time. I'm going to stop those people laughing. <laughs> <laughs> How sweet is that? It's just one of those moments where you go, ah, oh, I'm writing that. Yeah, down. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it, it became it's, it became an issue that I had to again almost had to sort of realign what I was doing uh, and how far I was how far did I think it was going to go as a stand up? Yeah. That became the thing. Am I am I you know I never had any delusions about stand up because like I say I was I always felt like I was a bit of a fraud in the first part of my career. Yeah. But in the second part of my career, I just went, why? You know, you're you're not a new stand-up. You've been around a long time. I've never done Edinburgh anyway. So, and I know, I don't, you say never, say never, but I don't think I ever will now. So what am I going to do? You know, um, concentrate on the writing, but also concentrate on corporate work, mm -hmm. which is what I did. But, you know, well, I, I started writing the books and started doing the corporate work at the same time when I left, when I left off the curb. Did that focus on the corporate work? Did that feed you in the same way? I mean, one would imagine it's not the same as going and doing a gig gig, but did it kind no. of scratch the itch or was it simply it's paying the bills and allowing me to do something? No, it did scratch the itch because I, I, I put in a lot of effort in the writing for each, for each corporate. Mm -hmm. so, that it, so in a way it was stretching Raise more than it would be. Raise the expectations for the rest of us? What yeah. a prick. <laughs> Listen, I just thought I'd get that in. Yeah, available, available for corporate work, even more. <laughs> Not even true. <laughs> um, but it just, it just, no, it, it, it's, it scratched the itch for me more than a lot of the circuit gigs were doing, because, because I'd now come to the realization after about fifteen years of being a stand-up that I was, I was okay at it. Yeah, and and because I was good at it. I didn't want to go to 
the end of wherever, whatever road, A50, let's for example say the A54, and get 120 quid on a Thursday night. I didn't want that. And it was not, not knowing, not with the knowledge in my head that my son was at home going, well, where's my daddy? Mm. I had to change that, you know. And I enjoy corporates. I enjoyed, I enjoy partly being paid for my skills that I've been, that have built up over 20 years. And partly because I just, in, I, I kind of enjoy the environment in a lot of them. Not all of them, obviously, because some of them are rotten. Mm. But, there's, it's also essentially quite a good fit because a lot of corporate work is you are playing to an audience that is largely male, middle-aged and are disappointed with life. And I, 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 can, I can tune into that so well. <laughs> I remember Pierre Novelli. I don't know if you know Pierre. He's sort of, yeah, I love Pierre, yeah. But he's, I remember him saying he does... Uh, I'm, I'm sure he won't mind... I don't no, no, I talk about other comics. I'm sure he won't mind it being known that he does very well at corporates <laughs> um, because he's of them. <laughs> He's one of them. He used yeah. to, I think, I don't know if yeah. he's had a financial background as well, but there's something whereby, right. you know, he's just able to go, I know who you are, I'm you. And when you're on that yeah. kind of platform, yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. talk to me about when the writing started in, in earnest. What was your first, it was, your first thing was a memoir of moving to France. Your first thing. Yeah. They're called books. <laughs> I, I was about to say novel, and then I thought, is it a novel if it's a memoir? I'm not sure what the terminology is. <laughs> it, no, it's all true. That's, what, that's the thing. It, I, 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 before I, I tell you how that started, we, Cueve McDonald and I tried to turn the first book into a sitcom. Okay. Which, which we did, and it was funny, uh, you know, about family who relocate to rural France, no real idea what's going on. And it, it was never made, obviously. But it, one of the one of the feedback we got, and I think it was from Sky, said uh, it's good, but it's so unrealistic. <laughs> and you go, hey, that's that's my fucking life. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, but it started because it, it, because the it's nuts here. It's it's, it's a crazy um, environment that we've built up for ourselves with all the animals that my wife insists on rescuing, mm-hmm. and there was just a particularly weird morning and I had to deal with cats and dogs and horses and goats and hens and chickens and then put on my suit and get on the Ryanair flight and go I can't remember where I was going Norwich I had no idea but I think it was Norwich and I tried to write it all down on the plane and try to try to make some sense of what my life had become you know um and I wrote that, and then I put it on Facebook as a Facebook note, and somebody said, you should do this regularly because it's really funny. So I'd, I'd set up a regular blog. And then a, um, a publisher approached me about a year after doing the blog. And he said, let's, let's turn it into a book, you know. So that's, you know, it was, again, it was very lucky. It was very lucky because if I'd, what I've now learned about trying to get a book published, mm. you know, it would have been so... It's so difficult that for a publisher to actually approach me is just, it's just almost unheard of. The genesis of routines, obviously the event, you're pissed off yeah. with a thing, you make a yeah. note that you're pissed off with the thing. Yeah. And then are you, do you go straight into sit down and write it out? Or are you talking, are you kind of no. hearing yourself describe the problems and conversationally and then noting them? Uh, no, that was one of the big changes for, when I when I went from changing how I wanted to perform stand-up, I changed how I wrote stand-up. Beforehand, I would sit down and I would write everything down in prose and then rehearse it and learn it and, and chip away at it like a, you know, like a sculpture or whatever. Whereas now I don't do that. I write standing up 
I've got this this sort of office with the with the sort of in the eaves, so it's a very triangular room, and I've got blackboards on the walls. So if I've got an idea, I write down the idea, and then I'll I'll walk up and down as if I'm on stage and and iron it out like that. So it becomes almost fully formed once it is first written down, uh, and 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 so you get the rhythm of the joke straight away. Which That's is probably why I can't sit down and perform it because it's 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 written it's it written in, its in movement. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. I love when people have found their way of working. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like that's a yeah. real, like a huge thing for me is um, uh, listening back to, if I'm kind of trying to punch stuff up or even build newer stuff, listening back to previous stuff whilst walking. Yeah. Just whilst, we're like in motion. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Go out yeah. for a long walk and yeah. suddenly I've done three times as much as I would have done sat in a cafe in the... In the in Absolutely. The... Absolutely. I mean, obviously writing books is very, very different, but... I would love to hear that you write your books out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I go and sit with the goats in the field, and they eat it. No, they don't do it. <laughs> how, how is it? How is it different? Obviously, there are sections for your books which are kind of you've got yeah. the bones of them because you have a stand-up routine. So, is that about yeah. fleshing it out, or is it about well, picking the, out different the, details? The prose would have come before the stand-up routines, and then from the books, I've lifted certain stuff that I can turn into stand-up. So, so they're slightly, they're slightly different. So, I would have written that as prose. It would have been written as a blog, probably on a train or on a plane or something. Because I'm very good at creating a bubble around me when I'm travelling, so nothing else gets in. Um, so, I can write it. I can write almost anywhere. It would have been written as a blog, then sort of chiselled again into a more booky format. So, you know, less less of stand up. If you see what yeah. I mean, blogs are quite chatty the prose is slightly less chatty and then i've lifted that prose and made it more chatty okay that's great that's i read this as a thing doing the rounds at the moment an interview with one of the lead writers for the simpsons and he talks about how you can you you, you just have to write a bad draft just don't have nothing right. yeah. write a bad draft and then yeah. you've got something and you can change it yeah absolutely. and that's an interesting like what you've done there is sort of like kind of a and taking that idea further, which is write something good, but in a different form. So yeah. actually, like I, I would yeah. find, I used to try and write out longhand and I would just spend ages and ages. I suppose because it wasn't a blog, it wasn't for public consumption. But I ended up fooling myself, I think, into feeling that if I came up with five pages, brackets right. of absolute shit, then that yeah. represented a good morning's work because at least I'd done something. I mean, that has yeah. some value, I guess. But I think it does. I think it does. I mean, I, I'd, when I'm actually writing a book i set myself like a, a minimum in the morning of a thousand words okay just you know and it can be 99 you know 900 of them might be rubbish in the edit but you know you've still got something and plus it's still part of the discipline as well i think it's the still discipline yes. with prose writing is is so important to be on it every day and to know your characters and be aware of them and not not take breaks because then you forget stuff yeah, that's interesting. So, with your so your your third novel, your third book was a novel. Yeah. So yeah. that's a case of now you're writing for characters. So did yeah. that? What was the difference in how you would write that? You've got the discipline. You've got the number of words. You've got the yeah. when the muse when you've got the muse, don't let go, don't have a break, yeah. keep yeah. going. And are you chucking post-it notes everywhere of plot? I mean, how do you plot? Kind of, novel? yeah. There, there, well, there's a program called Scrivener which I use for book writing, which is fantastic. So, so it's all in one place. But there are post-it notes everywhere. 
But the process of writing that one, that was really slow because I'd never really written fiction before. So I had to, you know, it changed so often in the, the edit process. And then I finished the book and it was called Playing the Martyr. Or I think at that time it was called Joan of Arc's Shadow. And I sent it off to a top editor, Mark Billingham, um, who we all know is a terrific author, used to be a stand. That was yes. actually part of the Tracy Brothers that only <laughs> I hadn't heard of the Tracy Brothers. I've heard of Mark. I've heard of yeah. Mark, who's notable to newer comics, because if you pick up one of his books in Waterstones and flick Absolutely. through it, the characters are all named Thorn, Kits, and just everyone yeah. you know who's on the circuit yeah. of him at the time. I mean, Absolutely. Um, so... So I sent it to this top editor, I think it was Harlan Coben's editor, and he, he sent me this 10-page document back. It cost me a lot of money to get this, this book okay. to do it. And he sent me this document back, and it just ripped it to shreds, absolutely tore it apart. And he said, look, I think you should give me... At the bottom of the document, he said, look, can, can, can we ring? Can we talk about this? Because okay. clearly he must have felt quite bad about absolutely destroying the thing. And I rang him up, and I and he sounded really nervous. And I just said, "So I've read, I've read what you've written. I think, part of, as far as I can see, there's only one thing you don't like about the book." And he and the, his voice was like, "Really?" And I went, "Yeah, the words. You don't like, <laughs> you don't like any of them, do you?" And but he gave me a lesson in how to write a book. It's a brilliant document on how to write a crime book. Um, so then I rewrote the book, and I self-published that one. Um, but the fourth one is fiction, but it's com- it's almost completely different, and it's much. The, this I've really enjoyed writing that. I haven't felt like I'm out of my comfort zone, which I felt slightly with the other fiction one. Okay, this is very much. Well, it's very much me, you know. So it's it's a, it's an easier thing to write. I want to hear more about this criticism. I know that comics can always remember <laughs> snatches of reviews, like the negative yeah. ones, far more yeah. than the positive ones. Is there anything that yeah. stands out from it that you could share with us? Uh, yeah, one of the <laughs> towards the end of it, because it, basically it's uh, it, the, the main character is a, a juge d'instruction. It's like a, a mag, uh, an investigating magistrate, like a DA, I guess you'd have in, in America. Okay. But he's half English and half French, and. After tearing the whole thing apart, he just puts in in the in a paragraph near the end. Maybe you should uh, maybe you should think of ditching that character entirely. <laughs> the whole the whole book is built around him, his dual nationality, and the fact that it's unique having an investigating magistrate. And he said, just have someone who's you know amateur, an amateur detective, because you clearly don't know enough about the legal system. Oh yes, I mean that's a fair point, right? Because well, like, I was really annoyed about that. I'd done loads of research that okay. morning on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. And, and talk to me about receiving that criticism. Like, did you expect when you received like a 10-page evisceration of your novel? Yeah. Like, talk to me about, I mean, my body's freezing up thinking about it. <laughs> about re- I mean, most comedy reviews, they're not 10 pages. And this, no. is, this is new ground for you. This isn't a memoir. This is your first stab at narrative yeah. fiction. Yeah, I just, it was so, it was, I don't know, because I think part of me, and I think we all have this, part of me was like, I've got the editor from Harlan Coben. He's, he's gonna, obviously he's gonna suggest some changes, but then this time next year, I'm gonna be on an airport book stand. Right? So that's what I had in my head. So when I received this, this 10 page crucifixion, it was so far the other way. It was almost funny. 
Do you see what I mean? It wasn't like, well, I'd ditch half the book or I'd do that or this needs some engineering. I think it may have some prospects if. It was literally, this is awful. <laughs> and, and, and my reaction to that was, <laughs> there's, no, there's no hope in that. I, I just don't move on. I've just okay. got to... You know, so I didn't. Did you? Didn't did any part badly. of you? Did any part of you reject it? Did part of you think this guy doesn't know what he's talking about? I believe in my thing. No, or did you feel like no. he's got me? No. Yeah, I'd gone straight to the top here. I, <laughs> I'd gone to the most knowledgeable editor in crime publishing in the Western world. So, and is that a? I didn't even know that was a thing you could do. You could just pay someone to go look. I'm not suggesting you publish it or anything well, like that. But well, he'd just gone freelance. I, I okay. was his first client, according to his invoice, which was zero 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 one. I was his yeah. first. <laughs> wow! And the fee was, reverse that. Uh, yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. It was. Um, so I didn't. I didn't feel like I had any cause for complaint. You know, it was. I, I could under every every point he he went through and he went through it you know with a fine tooth comb every point I'd just sit back and go God he's right right so like I say it was literally a lesson I've got this document you know that is a lesson in how to write a crime book did you then. Um... You can, uh, Ian is charging £10 a look if you want to scan his document, but only a quick look on Zoom. That's the, uh, the, the new fields of creativity. Send you one page a week if you send me. <laughs> That's the way. That's how it's done. Um, is that part of the reason that you then self-published that book? You went, I'm going to, I mean, was there a, it, I don't know. I'm not suggesting that to no. self-publish is to sweep under the rug. I don't mean that. No, I rewrote the book. I completely rewrote the book as as per the guidelines. And this was the point. It's so difficult getting an agent. And even Mark Billingham read the book and said, this is a great book. But even that didn't get me in the doorway of any agents. And I just got pissed off with it. And I just thought, well, I just, it doesn't cost me anything. It, what, what is it going to cost me, 200 quid to self-publish it? And Queeve at that time had just started his self-publishing crusade and was, was doing great. And... But he was, like I said earlier, he was working really hard at it, at the marketing side of things. And and his wife, Elaine, helps him with that because she's an expert on all of that as well. So I just thought I'd put it out there, you know, and it was good. It is still good. But it's now been withdrawn because it's now there's now some publishers considering it now. Okay. Oh, you can do that. You can self-publish and then whip yeah. it back off the internet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which, is quite, which is quite a good way of doing it. Um because then you've got a load of reviews also as well. Okay, that's handy. Um, but I wouldn't self-publish again because, like I said, it's just too hard work. Huh. But then this new, this new um, fiction series, I, like I say, it's just, it's just so much. Because what I had was, what I, when, it, when that was rejected by so many agents, even though I thought it was good and was told it was good, I thought, well, look, I've written two memoirs which have been bestsellers, but nobody really wants another... French memoir, and I didn't make a great deal of money out of it. I've written this this sort of noir crime thriller, which is good, but nobody wants it. So I thought, well, <laughs> just I'm, laughing I'm, at the idea that you created the genre French noir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've created a new genre called Pinot Noir. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, I've I've kind of combined all the books into this new series, which is 
a bloke who runs a B&B in rural France gets mixed up in some crime with a bounty hunter and just has, it's a comedy crime set in rural France. So it's taken some of the elements that you can do in a memoir, which is really close looking at the nonsense that you're surrounded by. The, the things that I learned from being, you know, <laughs> being heavily criticised when I, when I self-published the other one. And I got a deal to do this one. So, or three of them anyway. I've got a deal to do a series of three so far. So, so great. So the deal is for the series. And you've yeah. written, have you written the, the first in the series? Or I've did you written say, the first one. Have I've, you got outlines I've, for the second and third? I've written the second one. And I need to start writing the third one this week. When, when, my, when my laptop comes back from, from the <laughs> hospital. What does that feel like right now to go... I've written those two books and I need to start writing a book this week. I know. Like that, well, I mean, the no, obviously the nearest I've got to that is like, it's an Edinburgh show, it's March, <laughs> I've got nothing, let's go. But it is, but the thing is, and this is, and this is where your, your comedian's vulnerability comes in. I'm not going, oh, well, I'm just, I'm just going to start the third book. What I'm doing is I'm looking ahead going, right, that book has to be ended in, handed in at the end of August. Well, then what am I going to do? What if they're not successful? What, what if they don't want any more? Where Do I have to go back on the road again? You know, you're, I'm already kind of getting a bit jittery, you know. And do you feel, are you, are you feeling happy and confident about sitting down to write a book in three months? Over, over yeah. the course of three months? Yeah. So you feel like because, you know what you're doing? Yeah, I, th- I think that that's, uh, once you break it down, you know, like people always used to say, well, look, if you're writing an Edinburgh show, it's just five minutes a month. That's all you have to write. I mean, it, ne- it never works out like that, really. But if I, I've, I know roughly how many thousand words it's going to be. I know roughly how many days there are between the end of this week and the end of August when it needs to be in. Uh, only roughly, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> only roughly. <laughs> I can't do the math. <laughs> Actually, I'm not, I'm not that desperate for it. No. Uh, uh, so it will be fine. It will be fine unless I hit some major you know plot problems but i've done i've done most of the plotting okay so that so that you know what the plot is already so the right so talk to me about that you've got a skeleton of the plot of the novel you know who the main how many of the characters do you know who they are i know all the characters i've got all the characters sorted and on on my on my sick laptop i really hope it comes back or that might that might set me back sometime oh really genuinely like a lot of yeah. it is not backed up to the cloud just on a laptop that you spilled yeah. wine on <laughs> yeah yeah I know. I know. sure why so, would you why would you want a backup sure but i look i am <laughs> so no I'm backup so, keeps you tight on the edge where you've got to so be rural france about this whole thing i'm just ah, i'll be fine um but no i know the characters and i've got little thumbnail images that i've done all the research from so i know what they look like and how they would react in certain situations which is also really good for because i read the audiobook for the first one and having those images in front of you meant that I could do the voice characterizations a lot better as well. And there were yes. just, I'd got that advice off just asking people on Facebook, how would you do that? Um, so it's all there. It's really all there. It's, I'd lo- I really need the, uh, the chateau to open around here because there's a chateau just down the road where this one's set. And I need to be able to get in there and get some details of rooms. But it's and closed stuff. for COVID reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a danger of the book being there set on the outside of a chateau. <laughs> <laughs> set on a lay-by outside, <laughs> outside a chateau. Yeah. 
But what? no, I'm excited about it. I'm really, you know, I'm looking forward. Uh, if I can, if I, uh, you know, I'll try and. I, I desperately want to start next week because I'm already a week behind schedule because of the, the what we're calling the wine incident. Yeah. You've got. I'm just thinking. I'm so. I'm. I'm underqualified to ask about the creation of novels. You've got the characters, you've got the thumbnails, you know what the plot is. What is the plot? In what form is the plot written? Is the plot written in sentences? Is the plot written in scenes, in beats, in chapters? Scenes. I think it goes in scenes and then and I kind of, um, how I do it is I have, I have different ideas that I, what, what I want to be in the book. I have the rough skeleton. I know where it's set. I know who's going to be murdered and I know who's going to have done the murdering. Okay, so you kind of branch off with that and I write down roughly there's going to be i think there was 36 chapters in the first book so say roughly 40 chapters if i come up with 40 scenes i will then put them in some kind of order and that order might change as i'm writing it but that's how i genuinely see the progression of the book and okay. each scene is it can be just like it could just be two words and then i'll when i'm sitting down i know what, what we've come to that point in the story so i know who's going to be in that scene yes but for instance i've wrote one down i can see it on my desk hot air balloon chase yeah. so you know that'll that will happen somehow but it's a funny idea that will work in the book and so i'll engineer that into the into the overall plot so you've got to then do research about the like how it's technically possible to chase a hot air balloon with yeah. another hot air balloon. So you do all your hot air yeah. balloon research, speak to someone yeah. who's flown a hot air balloon. I might even go on one. There, there's loads of them locally around here because they go over the Loire Valley. And so it's, gotcha. you know, it might, might be quite okay. Fun. Well, wife says she's not coming with me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, and then you go, you go on the hot air balloon. Just, I mean, that's a really funny, that's an amusingly extreme example. Here's a scene, yeah. hot air balloon chase. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to that. You go on the ride and you, on the hot air balloon and you go, okay, there's detail. You can feed off detail and you, you yeah. know what it smells like. You know what the creak of the ropes, <laughs> is it ropes? I don't know. That, yeah. that, you find, <laughs> you so. find out whether or not it's ropes. And then yeah. presumably do, do elements of that maybe surprise you and you end up going, oh, actually, this isn't a hot air balloon chase. It's a hot air balloon crash that I need to write. So yes. it, so it changes so each yeah. each little scene can transform. My my fear would be particularly with something with its detective where a thing has to lead to another thing would be kind of the outside eye someone reading it and going oh hang on a minute how can person A have been involved with person C because yeah. they knew XYZ like that would I'd find that kind of crippling if I if I imagine Well that's that's what I mean about the discipline and doing it every day and 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 really trying to do it almost as quickly as possible so that everything you've done is in your head Gotcha And you but you you've got you've got all your notes like after every chapter I'll make a note of what's in that chapter which characters have been introduced any anything like a name of a of a cafe or something like that so that I don't then have to go rereading the whole thing to check that that works. I can yep. go straight to it, and gotcha. if I have if I have made a change there that affects something ten chapters so back, so you produce a I chapter. Go, I go straight back and yeah. a log of like yeah. the York notes on that chapter. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and is there? Yeah. I, I, we must wrap up. Is there? Are there? When you mentioned the comedian's vulnerability, like obviously mm. that's kind of a, a. I thought you were going to use that as a positive thing. You know what I mean? Like the idea of a right. comedian being vulnerable and how you can take things. Actually, it's, you know, it's awful. It's, it's fear. It's like, it Jesus, is. what's it the is. next thing going to be? But yeah. what are the, and this might be a trite question, but what are the, or are there any things which you learned on the road, on the stage, doing stand-up, which you have been able, like kind of 
frameworks, really, ways of thinking that you've been able to apply to to your writing? I think it depends what if, to the to the book writing. I think that it's what I've learned as a writer after the first fiction book I did, and what I learned now is that I was going against my instincts with the first fiction book, and that I was it was it was heavy, it was very noir, and it was you know proper airport crime book if you like and I was suppressing my natural instincts to go for the funny and uh, although it took me a long long time to realize that I was a very good stand-up comedian I am and I am funny and so when I came to writing thinking up an idea for the next one I was able to take from the confidence I have as a stand-up going I know this is funny and not worry about that side of things. I don't know, you know, whether it's whether the plot works. That's something I always have to be hot on and keep asking myself the questions of. But I know that the jokes work, and it's gaining that confidence. I think we talk about stand-up vulnerability. I think that's more of a almost like an existential thing where you're just going, I know this isn't going to work down the line, and I need to, you know, I'm going to have to get properly fluent in French and apply to the local supermarket for a job. I just know that's going to happen. But actually the, taking the skills of, of, of what I've learned of how to construct humour and timing, massively important for this new book series. It wouldn't work without it. It'd be a very, be a very dull read if it didn't have the jokes in it. Are you going to send it to Harlan Coben's editor? <laughs> he'd, he'd murder it. He'd hate it. I've gone against all his rules. I'm, I'm just a maverick now. Well, well, that's just very last thing then. Have you? Um, to what extent have you, even though the style is now different, to what extent does that template of how to write detective fiction, to what extent is your new work based on what you've learned from that? And to what extent is it based on a rejection of that? You know, what or... or it's the the biggest thing I learned from from that was that I was just I was approaching the writing of crime in the wrong way that I everybody had a voice um, the and because everybody had a voice in their own chapter the lead investigator was finding things out that weren't a surprise to the reader if you like so you, you had to come from one or or two points of view but you have to show not tell if you see what that's the, that's the biggest thing everybody's been drumming into me since I started writing fiction is show not tell you don't have to underline everything he had a look on his face because you know he had a look on his face and the reader knows why he's got that look on his face if you've if you've already laid the groundwork for that particular observation and it's and, and that's that's been a great great thing to learn and to have fun with as well thanks man That was Ian. Uh, a fantastic episode. Really enjoyed it. Death and Croissant is out on July 2021. That's this July, this year. Uh, and his new podcast is called Mustn't Grumble. You can pre-order the book and listen to the podcast by following the links in the show notes of this episode or go to ianmore.info. Now, um, I've got a postamble for you. Before I do that, two quick things. One, we got an absolutely crackling episode in the can with one Rosie Jones. Find out her true feelings about why Nish Kumar is such a horrible, horrible man and also why she is known as a beast. 
um it's it's such a joyful episode and i couldn't chisel the smile off my face for the entire following day um so that one's coming next week i've got some crackers coming up as well uh but i won't tell you who they are until they're in the can that is the policy and i'm sticking to it thank you once again to ian uh remember you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to join up get the extra stuff from that about what it means to him to be a mod and his doomed attempt to set up a creative retreat for artists great fun that all of the extra content from every show that has it plus that forthcoming fern brady insiders only zoom q a and i'm pretty sure now and i haven't booked it but i'm i feel good about it in maybe late june early july i'm going to do a little mini festival of insiders only events zoom q a's with some of your favorite comics I'm just letting you know that now. Don't regret if that hasn't tipped you over the edge, that's fine. Wait and hear the lineup. That's going to tip you over the edge. So, I've got a post amble that's bubbling away trying to get out of me. So, we'll do that in just a sec. Now, thank you to Ian for coming on the show. Thanks for Nathan Wood for producing it. Thank you to Jake Crossland for the logging. Thanks to Rob Smouten for the music. Pete Dobbing is your podcast consultant as always. And I have been Stuart Goldsmith. You can keep in touch at ComComPod. And earlier today, I posted a funny video that I'd made on the way home from the school run. And a bunch of people clicked like on it. And I went, oh, right, that's how you do it. You just, you just post a funny video and then people like it. Thanks, Stuart Laws, for the tip. Other stew. Cheers. I'll speak to you soon. And I'll speak to you very soon if you're post-ambling. Bye for now. So I have got, I don't even know if this is a postamble or if this is a whole mini episode because I had the most extraordinary therapy session last week and I wanted to let it percolate for a bit rather than just blab it at you. I, rec- I, <laughs> I recorded a sort of an explanation of what I'd been through right afterwards, but I would hate to be there. I mean, maybe I'll release that. Who knows? I don't know if I can give you the short form notes on it, but team, God, All I would say is that if you're in therapy, stay in it until you get one of these. And if you're thinking about therapy, please do it if you possibly can. If you could, it's so valuable. I know it can be horribly expensive, but it can change your life. I am seven whole days away from the last one and I've felt amazing the entire time. No, not amazing the entire time. That would be mad. I've frequently been annoyed at small things, but it has hugely cleared up for me some big stuff. What shall I do? Shall I release that? episode as a separate thing that's a bit self-indulgent but equally maybe i'll save it up i'll i'll just give it i'll give another week or two give it another week or two see if i still feel the same tell you about it then yeah bye for now is that the end i don't i feel like that should be the end i don't know that i have anything else to say i'm just cracking on i'm doing i'm doing this 30 days of resilience challenge thing on linkedin so if you are following me on linkedin or you or you want to jump on there because i'm doing a series of little video things like just sort of three minute long videos i've committed to 30 days and that's an insanely long fucking time i've done like 10 of them now i'm like i think i've got i think i've said everything interesting i think but i'm really enjoying the discipline of it and i'm really enjoy. i mean it takes a long time and it's getting quicker and there is something very means of production about knowing how to video edit and put cross dissolves and sort the sound out and all the rest of it that's fun and i'm getting up and running for looking straight down the barrel of my webcam and smashing through a thing in one take that's fun too so it is good but i don't know should i repurpose the content it's all a bit sort of linkedin focused at the moment but i feel like i could wang one of them on uh, 
on Twitter at least. Yeah, maybe I'll chuck one of them on Twitter and we'll see because I think they're fun. I included, in fact, here's a little incentive ahead of the Rosie Jones episode next week. There is the tiniest fraction of a snippet of a video of part of that interview with Rosie Jones. So if you're on LinkedIn, go to that. If you're not, don't worry about it. Loads of people aren't and there's no need to be unless it's sort of important to your business. But um, I feel like I am working hard, being busy, and more importantly, I'm doing it for myself rather than because I feel compelled by some fucking prick of a monkey on my back. And um, uh, that's the really satisfying thing. I'm sort of desperate to tell you all about the, like the nuts and bolts of this big therapy thing, but I think it's better for me if I shut the fuck up and get on with some work and just give it another week or so, see how I feel. All right? Okay, Stew Therapy fans back with you soon thanks for listening lovely episode this one and the two i've got coming up i'm excited about both of them as well and then i've got to do some more booking haven't i god can someone come and run my life for me and just get a lot of shit done who was it who was taking modafinil deliberately to get things done oh i remember now yeah greasy little comedian monkeys that you are um maybe i should no <laughs> i'm starting to falling apart always time to pull the plug on the post humble goodbye now Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.